Good morning, and welcome to the first debate of the 2021 China Power Conference. I'm Bonnie Lin, Director of the China Power Project and Senior Fellow for Asian Security at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Thank you for joining us today. This is the sixth year we are hosting the China Power Conference, and we have a fantastic lineup of leading experts to debate five key topics on different aspects of Chinese power. We will also have two keynote speakers, Secretary Christine Wormuth and Senator Steve Daines, who will share with us their assessments of Chinese power. So today's debate is on the preposition, the COVID-19 pandemic has accelerated the timeline by which China will surpass the United States to become the world's leading economic power. This debate is central to a number of key questions related to China, including what drives Chinese and US economic growth? And is there any evidence to support what some in, the, in Asia and particularly in China are arguing that China is rising and the United States is declining? For background, and as many of you know, the COVID-19 pandemic ended the longest recorded economic expansion in US history. In the second quarter of 2020, the US economy declined 9.1%, the steepest quarterly drop in economic output on record. China suffered its own historic slowdown during this initial COVID-19 outbreak in Wuhan, and its economy shrank 6.8% during the first quarter of 2020. However, the Chinese economy recovered more quickly and grew by 2.3% in 2020, while the U.S. economy shrunk 3.5%. As a result, some forecasters concluded that China will overtake the United States to become the world's largest economy earlier than was predicted prior to the pandemic. At the same time, other experts have argued that the pandemic exacerbated issues that will hinder China's long-term economic progress. Next slide, please. So before we move into the debate, I hope that all of you will take a moment to cast your vote either for or against the preposition now. You can cast your votes in one of two ways. First, via the website by going to pollev.com slash China Power. Or if you're in the United States, you can text China Power, one word, to 22333. Uh, after you do that, you will be asked to join and then you will get a response confirming your participation. You can choose either option A or B. A is if you agree with the preposition and B is if you disagree. We will tally all the votes cast over the next minute or so and display the results before we start the debate. Next slide, please. So while the votes are being cast, I want to introduce our amazing speakers. So arguing for the preposition is Dr. Yao Yang, professor at the China Center for Economic Research at the National School of Development at Peking University. Professor Yao is a member of the China Finance 40 Forum. His research interests include economic transition and development in China. He has published more than 100 research papers in international and domestic journals, as well as several books on institutional economics and economic development in China. Professor Yao is also a prolific writer for magazines and newspapers, including the Financial Times and Project Syndicate. Arguing against the, arguing against the preposition is our very own Mr. Gerard DePippo, Senior Fellow at CSIS Economics Program. He joined CSIS after nearly 11 years in the US intelligence community. From 2018 to 2021, 
Gerard was Deputy National Intelligence Officer for Economic Issues at the National Intelligence Council, where he led the IC's economic analysis of East Asia. He also was a senior economic analyst at the CIA, focused on East Asia, South Asia, and global economic issues. So for the next one, half hour, one hour and 15 minutes, our event will run a couple of ways. First, both speakers will take a approximately 15 minutes to present their initial remarks. After that, both will make, after they both make their arguments, we will have an additional five or so minutes for each speaker to respond to the arguments made by the other. We will then take questions from viewers. All questions should be directed to the preposition so that um, they can enrich the debate as well as help both folks understand both sides of the argument. Following the QA, we will take a final poll, and I hope that you will stay with us until the end so you can cast your vote after listening to the wonderful debate. Next slide, please. So now, now let, us, let us turn to the debate results. So in preparation for this debate, we conducted a Twitter poll uh, starting from November this past Monday, November 15th until today, and we had uh, hundreds of votes. And not surprisingly, this is a quite a um, interesting issue with the votes relatively evenly uh, distributed. About 49.5% 49, 49 of folks agree with the preposition and 50.5% disagree. So with that, I think this provides a very good foundation to turn the floor to first Professor Yao Yang from Peking University. So Professor Yao, over to you for your arguments for why China will surpass the United States economically. Thank you, Bonnie. Uh, it's my great honor uh, to come to this panel to uh, debate on uh, China's uh, strengths uh, gained uh, through the pandemic. Uh, of course, I support uh, the proposition. Uh, I believe that the pandemic has uh, strengthened uh, China's economic position and it will eventually accelerate China's catch up with the United States. Uh, I have uh, uh, several reasons uh, to believe uh, in this proposition. Uh, first, uh, as we have already seen, that China was the first major country uh, to have contained the virus. Uh, so the Chinese economy bounced back first. Uh, as a matter of fact, the Chinese economy began to recover uh, since uh, last May. And then uh, last uh, half, uh, half, half year of last year, uh, China registered really high uh, growth, right? So that's one. The economy uh, between United States and China, uh, we see that gap has been uh, leveled down quite quickly over the last 10 years and continued to be leveled uh, last year. Uh, you know, Chinese uh, GDP with 68% of American GDP in 2019. Uh, this is, of course, uh, uh, by uh, the current exchange rate, not by purchasing power parity. By purchasing power parity, uh, China has already been much larger than the United States economy. Okay. Uh, last year, uh, China uh, has uh, a percentage of U.S. GDP with 71 percent, uh, up uh, by 3 uh, percent. Um, 
This uh, sounds like a, a small uh, progress. That was because uh, uh, the yuan uh, divided against the dollar in the first half of the year. Um, I expected that uh, this year, uh, China GDP as a percentage of US to grow to 72.5%, uh, right? Uh, so this uh, also includes uh, the yuan's appreciation against dollar. I think uh, this year, the yuan is going to appreciate uh, by 2% points against uh, the dollar. Right? Uh, the US economy uh, is going to grow by probably 6.8%. Uh, uh, and uh, the inflation rate in the US is quite high. But uh, China probably is going to grow by 8.5% in real term. Uh, so in the end, uh, China is still going to lead the, the United States uh, in terms of uh, nominal growth rate. Okay. Uh, so that's uh, on the GDP side. Let's look at the other area. Uh, let's first look at the export. Uh, last year, export of major countries or decline, uh, but China registered four uh, percent growth. Uh, that's actually quite high, uh, particularly compared with other countries. So um, that uh, increased China's share of uh, export in world total by more than one percentage point. Okay, um, so. So China's uh, share of world uh, export uh, reached 11%. Okay. Uh, this year, China's export uh, increased by 28% in the first half of the year. Right? So that, that's uh, marvelous growth. Uh, to put this number in perspective, it's actually as high as China experienced uh, in the period uh, just after China joined the WTO, right? So, so in, the, in the beginning of this century. And if we look at the China-US trade, uh, you know, it, it came down after the trade war began. But after pandemic, uh, US-China trade has begun to increase again. Uh, in the first half of this year, has been increased by almost 35%. And uh, China has uh, registered uh, a surplus of 165 billion US dollars, right? So you can see US-China economic relationship, trade relationship has gone back uh, to the situation just before the trade war began, right? So, you know, there are, I understand that there are many people in the U.S. that uh, are arguing that U.S. should uh, decouple with China, uh, but that's that argument does not have much economic uh, basis. And we can see uh, after the pandemic, uh, U.S. and China have gone back to the older days. It sounds like uh, the fundamentals, economic fundamentals in both countries are, are working again. Okay. Of course, I'm not saying that this is the, the right direction for both countries to see 
imbalances come back again. Uh, but uh, I want to emphasize this imbalances uh, is related to economic fundamentals in both countries, right? So if we want to solve this uh, problem, we have to uh, conduct adjustments in both countries. So uh, next, let's look at uh, foreign direct investment. Uh, in the first half of this year, uh, China received 177 billion US dollars in uh, foreign direct investment. Okay, uh, That's more than 20% of world total. Uh, China is the largest recipient of FDI. So I think the capital flow, particularly FDI, FDI are long-term capital, right? So capital uh, uh, is actually working by fee, right? So they have chosen to come to China because China offered them uh, a lot of opportunities, okay? So next, let's look at the supply chain. March, uh, April, last year, many people said, oh, uh, the world uh, would uh, just uh, cut the supply chains with China, and China would be isolated. That's not true, right? Uh, it, it, you know, supply chains between China and the world is not broken. Uh, on the other hand, it, it has been uh, strengthened, right? It's just because uh, China is such a, a huge manufacturing country. China's manufacturing value added uh, was 29.2% of world total last year. What does that mean? The sum of the US, Japan, and Germany was barely larger uh, than China's share, right? So you can see how big China, China's market is, the Chinese industries that uh, attract investment, that attract uh, uh, capital flowing to China. Uh, take the example of Tesla. Uh, Tesla only began to produce cars last year. Today, how many cars, how many Tesla are being sold in China? 50,000 cars in a month. 50,000 cars in a month. Tremendous, right? Uh, last but not least, let's look at the technology. Um, we know that the United States uh, leads the world in almost every technology, uh, including AI. But China is a catch up uh, in uh, the area of AI very quickly, uh, mostly because uh, China has uh, offered a lot of opportunities for AI applications. Uh, the pandemic actually has helped China to adopt AI technology because uh, uh, Chinese governments, you know, mostly local governments uh, are using AI technology to track people's movements uh, purely for virus uh, prevention uh, purpose. Right? So uh, that's why in China, uh, when a wave of virus uh, comes out, uh, we can quickly, you know, trace people uh, trace those, uh, uh, particularly those infected people, uh, and then find out uh, the other people who had uh, close contacts with them, right? So we can quickly do quarantine, 
and then we can just put off uh, the virus. Okay. Yeah, I understand uh, many people in the West call this a digital dictatorship, but let's face it, uh, human society is going to face a wider, wider, wider application of AI. I think it's a, a matter not about uh, so-called dictatorship, but it's actually about uh, whether and how you are going to embrace a new technology. Okay. Um, so look, look at uh, another area of technology, that's uh, electric cars. Okay. Uh, last year, uh, China's uh, sales of electric cars uh, was 40% of world total. What about uh, the first quarter of this year? Uh, almost 59%. China sold uh, 1.76 million uh, electric cars in the first three quarters of this year. That was a tremendous growth and China gained tremendous uh, ground uh, in the whole world. Uh, China's uh, uh, EV sales was more than six times the American sales, right? So that's the difference. China is far, far ahead of the United States uh, uh, in terms of adopting cleaner uh, EV, uh, EV and electric cars, right? Uh, so uh, with that, uh, let me uh, stop here and let me uh, reiterate my position. I support the proposition that the pandemic has accelerated uh, China's pace to catch up with the United States. My take uh, is that China is going to become the largest economy by uh, 2028, uh, this probably the soonest or 2030, the latest. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Yao. Fascinating uh, set of points to make your case. Um, now, let me turn the floor to Gerard to make the his argument for why this is not the case. Thank you, Bonnie. Good morning and good evening, everyone. Uh, Professor Yao, I'm honored to be sharing the debate stage with you. And thank you for your comments. So everyone, now that you've heard the proposition or the the argument for the proposition, I will argue against the proposition. So the pandemic has not accelerated the timeline by which China will surpass the US economically. I will make the case that the pandemic has harmed China's economic development and has contributed to relatively positive economic and policy changes in the United States. First, I'd like to frame the question, what, what would it mean for China to become the world's leading economic power? The typical way to answer this is talk about the relative GDPs of each country, actually, as Professor Yao was just, was just doing. Uh, by this measure, most forecasters predict China's GDP will overtake that of the United States around 2030, give or take a year or two on either side, depending on the assumptions. Professor Yao said 2028, 20, 20, for example. Uh, last year, many predicted that COVID would result in a relatively higher growth rate for China because its economy had recovered faster from the pandemic. However, this year, predictions have shifted in favor of the United States because on the U.S. side, of surging consumption and rapid job recovery, and on the China side, energy shortages in a cooling property market. But these kinds of forecasts are complex and require major assumptions. So instead, let's talk about specific economic trends and policies in both countries since the pandemic. We need to consider the direct and indirect effects of the pandemic, especially policy responses. 
In some cases, the pandemic made outcomes more likely, even if it didn't actually decide them. The pandemic helped expose major weaknesses in China's economy and accelerated global trends that are unfavorable to China's continued rise. More specifically, I will argue that the pandemic has had at least five major economic or policy effects on both sides of the Pacific. Namely, first, it has worsened China's economic imbalances and weaknesses. Second, these imbalances were made worse by China's limited assistance to households, which has harmed lower income workers and overall consumption. Third, it has increased local government and corporate debts in China, risking China's long-term financial stability. Fourth, it has increased the pace at which multinational firms are shifting production out of China and has heightened awareness among foreign governments about over-reliance on China. And fifth, it helps spur new spending in the United States to support innovation and infrastructure and strengthens Washington's hand with, with its allies, in part by tarnishing China's reputation. First, the pandemic has worsened China's macroeconomic imbalances. So for over a decade, Chinese leaders have understood that the, that the economy needs to move away from exports and toward domestic consumption for sustainable GDP growth. But this is not what's happened during the pandemic. China's economic recovery has depended on, on a return to its old export-driven model, while consumption has lagged. In 2020, net exports contributed the largest share of China's GDP growth since 1997, while consumption has not recovered to its pre-COVID trend, according to data from China's National Bureau of Statistics. China reported the largest monthly U.S. dollar trade surplus in record last month. On an annual basis, or if you're doing a rolling 12-month basis, China's goods trade surplus is the largest it has ever been at about $660 billion. The pandemic also struck China's vulnerable property developers. In China, the property sector is vitally important to the economy. Some economists have estimated that it accounts for more than 25% of China's GDP once you factor in all related industries, such as steel. After COVID struck, property sales plummeted as most Chinese were under lockdown. This hit heavily indebted property developers where it hurts by disrupting their cash flows. The Chinese government is trying to reduce China's reliance on real estate, which makes sense as a structural reform, but they went about it in an aggressive way in the middle of the pandemic. In August of 2020, they announced regulations called the three red lines to rein in property developers' debt, but it came in a time of great vulnerability and pushed some property developers to the edge. The best example of this, as you might have seen, is a company called Evergrande. This property developer has over $300 billion in debts alone, and it has been on the verge of default for two months, while a few other developers have already defaulted. Meanwhile, property sales in China are falling. Most economists who are you know, currently downgrading their China GDP forecasts are focused on the slowing property sector. This is a key vulnerability for China's economy. COVID has made it worse. In addition, China's continuation of its zero COVID strategy, which was highly effective early in the pandemic, probably will offer diminishing benefits as vaccinations increase and impose rising costs as other major economies open up the travel and accept a, you know, a living with COVID strategy. This will further weigh on Chinese consumption, particularly tourism, both among foreigners and Chinese. Some Chinese scientists have noted that COVID-19 variants have evolved such that full containment is no longer feasible. And a few have argued that China's zero COVID policy is unsustainable and will be increasingly costly. Nonetheless, official Chinese press has pushed back against these claims as Chinese leaders appear intent to maintain this policy, even with its economic costs. COVID probably has also worsened China's already bad demographic trajectory with longer term implications. Some demographers predict that births in China will fall below the number of deaths in China this year for the first time. 
This is in part because families are delaying pregnancy plans due to concerns about COVID and access to medical support during the pandemic. Second, China's economic policy response to the pandemic was relatively small and poorly designed. It focused on addressing supply side concerns and getting factories back online, but it did very little to directly support households. This was a lost opportunity to support economic rebalancing towards household consumption, as it meant that China's industrial sector recovered faster than its consumption. China's fiscal response to the pandemic relative to its economy was much smaller than that of the United States, most other large economies, and even smaller than average for emerging market economies. The IMF has estimates on, on the size of major economies, essentially their COVID uh, relief and stimulus packages. And the IMF estimates that China's stimulus spending equaled about 5% of GDP, compared to more than 25% of GDP in the United States. The numbers were similarly high in Europe and other major economies, by the way. This was a reversal from the fiscal response to the global financial crisis in 2008 and 9, when China helped support other economies with its enormous stimulus while the United States and Europe were far more conservative with their spending. China's fiscal response to COVID also meant that Chinese workers who lost jobs were mostly left to fend for themselves, relying on savings. This is especially true for China's roughly 280 million migrant workers who were disproportionately harmed by COVID because the lockdowns impeded travel and many of them have to travel to, to live elsewhere and because they often work in services affected by the disruption. China's spending on unemployment insurance, for example, since 2019 has totaled about $50 billion or about 0.3% of China's 2020 GDP. And that's according to data from China's Ministry of Human Resources and Social Security. The United States, in contrast, has spent at least $800 billion in unemployment insurance payments, or about 3.8% of GDP. At its peak in mid-2020, nearly 15 million Americans received pandemic unemployment assistance. The U.S. government's superior assistance to households has supported the U.S. economic recovery. In fact, it has even subsidized China's recovery by spurring, spurring demand for its exports. In the United States, disposable income surged well above its pre-COVID trend, while in China, disposable income fell. Meanwhile, U.S. households paid down their credit card debts and strengthened their balance sheets, setting the stage for a sustained recovery. Third, China's debt problem has gotten worse. The total debt burdens of both China and the United States increased during the pandemic. As a share of GDP, total debt in both economies is roughly equal at, at about 285%. This is according to estimates from the uh, International Institute of Finance. And that includes uh, government, corporate, and household debts, by the way. However, the problem for China is the composition of those new debts. China's, new, China's debts grew mostly among local governments and corporations, especially state-owned enterprises while U.S. debts grew mostly because of the federal government. In the U.S., federal borrowing accounted for roughly 60% of borrowing, while in China, central government borrowing accounted for about 10%, with local governments and corporations accounting for the bulk of new debt. As with previous downturns, Beijing has limited central government support and instead, instead turned to localities and state-owned enterprises to pay for stimulus and relief efforts. This has added to China's problem with pervasive implicit state guarantees of those debts. This poses a risk to China's financial stability, as those debts will be hard to pay back if local governments and state-owned enterprises lack the cash flows to do so. Over time, this probably will require either more risky defaults or more direct support from Beijing, shattering the illusion that China's central government debts are small. The U.S., by contrast, borrowed on its central government balance sheet with liquid and transparent U.S. Treasury bonds. Those U.S. Treasury bonds, by the way, were purchased overwhelmingly by domestic investors. So the U.S. government is not relying on foreign investors such as China to pay for its spending. 
During this, during this period, U.S. government debt increased about $5 trillion, but the net worth of U.S. households increased by $25 trillion, according to data from the U.S. Federal Reserve. The United States' ability to pay its debts, including to itself, is not in question as U.S. consumers and corporations remain financially healthy. Fourth, multinational, uh, multinational corporations have accelerated their shift of production uh, out of China in response to the pandemic. A September survey of manufacturing exporters in China by the bank UBS found that 61% of firms had plans to move out of China. This process was underway in part because of U.S.-China tensions, but it's going faster now. Foreign firms are making their new investments elsewhere, at least on the margins, in a strategy called China Plus One. The pandemic has also raised awareness about foreign government, among foreign governments about their over-reliance on China for supply chains. This has contributed to initiatives to subsidize the relocation of production out of China. For example, the Biden, the Biden administration has made securing supply chains a priority and conducted a 100-day review early in their term. In October, the White House held a summit on global supply chain resilience with the European Union and 14 like-minded countries, which excludes China. Last year, Japan set up a special fund to subsidize firms to move production from China to Japan, and the European Union is exploring similar reshoring options. Shifting supply chains will put more pressure on China's manufacturing sector, which has been shedding jobs since 2014. Now, lower value added production has long been expected to leave China, that's, that's normal. But multinationals and foreign governments are, incre are increasingly wary about reliance on China, even for higher value added production. This will make it harder for Beijing to achieve its ambitious goal of maintaining a steady share for manufacturing in China's economy as declared in the 14 five-year plan. Finally, the pandemic has helped to overcome political paralysis uh, in Washington and strengthened the United States' hand with its allies. The pandemic could very well have been responsible for President Biden's election, in fact, given that the 2020 election was much closer than it had been, had been expected, particularly in swing states. On the economic front, U.S. policymakers and economists have learned lessons from their inadequate response to the global financial crisis in 2008 and 2009. The U.S. has passed, or is about to pass, a series of major pieces of legislation that are an order of magnitude more ambitious than release effort, relief efforts after the global financial crisis. These will increase the U.S. economy's long-term competitiveness, in part by guaranteeing that the economy rapidly recovers from the pandemic, unlike after the global financial crisis. These include the $2.3 trillion CARES Act passed in March of 2020, the $870 billion Consolidated Appropriations Act passed in December of 2020, the $1.8 trillion American Rescue Plan in March, and the pending roughly $1.7 trillion Build Back Better Act. COVID increased U.S. policymakers' focus on efforts to boost domestic innovation and infrastructure. And the U.S.'s vaccine development shows that the U.S. innovation and tech ecosystem is still the world's leader. In May 2020, the U.S. government launched Operation Warp Speed, which is a public-private partnership to accelerate development and production of COVID vaccines. This contributed to the rapid rollout of highly effective mRNA vaccines, which have benefited the United States and its allies. Warp Speed proved that the U.S. innovation system still has a lot of capacity and it can move fast when necessary, including with government support. The U.S. Senate also passed the Innovation and Competition Act in June, which the House plans to pass soon. The bill includes the $52 billion CHIPS Act, which aims to increase semiconductor production in the United States. This bill evidently has concerned the Chinese embassy enough that it has been lobbying U.S. businesses to oppose it, according to Reuters. This month, the president finally signed the $1 trillion Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act after Washington spent years debating such a package. 
The urgency and political shift from COVID likely made such a deal possible. Internationally, the pandemic has tarnished China's reputation. In June, Pew released polling indicating that China is viewed unfavorably by majorities in 15 of the 17 advanced economies surveyed. Now, it, it doesn't matter whether such public sentiments are fair. The fact is the mood has shifted and this will make it harder for China diplomatically. The pandemic has contributed to a slowdown in new Belt and Road Initiative project contracts, which you can see in the Ministry of Commerce's own data. China has also been less, let's say, less than generous in forgiving loans for low-income countries struggling to repay debts during the pandemic. Chinese banks have provided relief of only about $2 billion to low-income countries under the World Bank's Debt Service Suspension Initiative, even though China is by far the largest creditor and potential supporter of the initiative. While China's Belt and Road Initiative certainly isn't going away, in part because it's, en it's enshrined in the Chinese Communist Party's constitution, COVID probably has tarnished its reputation for some developing countries and will make them more cautious about accepting Chinese loans in the future. The damage to China's reputation from COVID probably has increased other countries' willingness to partner with the United States to address China-related economic or technological concerns. For example, the, the US and the European Union convened the Trade and Technology Council for the first time in September of this year. And the G7 has adopted the Build Back Better World Initiative, which is in part intended to counter China's Belt and Road Initiative. So the global diplomatic winds are shifting against Beijing, and COVID has been a big part of that. Taken together, all of these trends suggest that China's economic performance relative to the United States is likely to be weaker than it would have been had the pandemic not occurred. Thus, COVID has not accelerated when China will overtake the U.S. economically. Thank you. Thank you, Gerard, for a very comprehensive counter argument to the initial points that Professor Yao presented. Let me now turn to Professor Yao for initial rebuttals from his end. Unmute myself. Uh, yeah, I, I, Gerard uh, raised a uh, very interesting and uh, important points against uh, the proposition. Uh, but uh, I have uh, reasons uh, to believe that uh, his arguments uh, are not that complete. complete. Uh, I don't have much time to go over uh, his, all his points one by one. Let me pick up uh, uh, some of them. Uh, first on consumption, I agree. I agree with uh, Gerard that uh, consumption is uh, still weak in China, uh, but uh, you know, China now has this uh, zero uh, policy uh, for virus control, but I don't think uh, this policy is going to last forever. I think after the Winter Olympic Games, uh, China will change its policy. And by that time, domestic consumption will come back. The property sector, um, as Gerard uh, noted, uh, it's actually because our policy changes. It's not because the property sector itself has been bad. As a matter of fact, uh, starting from uh, late last year until, say, I think about uh, May, uh, June this year, uh, the property sector actually led China's uh, recovery. Right? So I, I really don't think it, it was because uh, of a bad situation in the sector itself. Okay. Um, yeah, less support to households, uh, to workers, uh, and enlarging inequality. 
agree with you, Gerard. That's uh, the fact. I'm not going to deny with that. Um, but this probably is the tradition uh, of the Chinese uh, economic policy, right? Uh, you know, the government has always been emphasizing the supply side, not the consumption. But probably exactly because of this, China saves so much and then uh, invests so much, right? And the investment is going to uh, bring uh, a faster economic growth, okay? Uh, the debt problem, yes, uh, uh, I agree. Uh, the fact uh, last year, uh, local debts uh, increased tremendously. But like in the United States, most of those debts uh, are bought by uh, Chinese financial institutions or, or Chinese people. I mean, we can just uh, roll over the debts to the future. Uh, China actually did once uh, between 2014 and 2018. So, uh, you know, this amount of debts is still manageable in China by international comparison. The Chinese government uh, uh, still uh, has less debts than most uh, other governments in the world. Right? Uh, I think the most controversial um, uh, uh, argument Gerard uh, uh, raised uh, is this uh, uh, U UBS, uh, UBC uh, survey uh, showing that 60% of the com foreign companies uh, were intended to move out of China. Uh, actually, uh, I know the uh, person uh, who did the survey. Uh, I talked with her, um, but yeah, I, I think uh, there uh, were some problems with that survey because uh, most of other surveys, uh, for example, the surveys done by Amchang, uh, China, Amchang, Shanghai, uh, didn't show that, right? Uh, you know, for out of their survey, in 10% at most of foreign companies uh, uh, were thinking about the moving out of China. And this is also con contrary to the FDI numbers, right? Uh, last, uh, this year, China is uh, the largest uh, recipient of FDI, right? Um, well, uh, China, uh, China's uh, room in international stages uh, is becoming smaller. Um, I tend to agree with uh, Gerard, but uh, I don't think that's because China has done something bad. It's just because misunderstanding uh, and the, uh, even in some cases, uh, uh, evil uh, thinking uh, towards China, uh, that actually has led uh, to a kind of uh, a more negative view uh, about uh, uh, China or Chinese political system. But uh, to a natural extent, uh, I mean, most of the countries can separate uh, uh, political system uh, from economic issues. So for example, uh, in the recent uh, Glasgow uh, Climate Conference, United States and China worked together to push forward uh, for a more concrete uh, uh, agreement, uh, concrete steps to implement uh, the Paris Accord. I think that's uh, very important, uh, right? And also uh, look at, uh, you know, the Chinese president uh, met uh, the American president online and they talked uh, for three hours. So 
Uh, I think uh, the trend is uh, still that uh, the international community uh, wants to in integrate China into the world system. Thank you, Professor Yao. Really great rebuttal on uh, many of the points that Gerard made. So over to you, Gerard, on uh, if you want to address these points or cover other points that uh, Professor Yao made. Sure. Thank you. Um, I, I I love that we agree on many of the specifics. It's it's natural when you when you put economists together, there's a ten tendency towards consensus. So I guess we're we're at least not really disputing the facts here. That's good. Um, so you raised a number of issues, which I'll, I'll try to tackle uh, quickly. Um, so regarding the the property sector claim, I mean, you, you're right, and I even said that the three red lines mattered a lot, right? They basically were telling pro property developers that you can only borrow so much and affected some like Evergrande more than others. But my point was, it was also the case that in 2020, at least the first half of 2020, that property sales had collapsed because of COVID naturally, and that Beijing announced this at the end of 2020. So basically they put these constraints in place in the middle of a time when it should have been obvious that property developers were vulnerable. Now, as I said, those structural reforms are necessary. So I'm not I'm not debating the wisdom of saying, as Xi Jinping says, that houses are for living and not for investing. But I do think the timing is a bit risky. Um, and I wonder whether the Chinese government is going to have to loosen some of those restrictions uh, as getting some signals leased in financial press this week about the PBOC telling banks maybe you should lend a little more to the property developers. And because of the importance of the property sector in China, this is central uh, to, to, uh, to basically China's macroeconomic outlook. Um, regarding the issue of debt, um, I, I mean, my contention is, is in essence that the U.S. is borrowing more honestly by putting the debts uh on the federal balance sheet as opposed to in the chinese system which is a function of its system that it is decentralized local governments do a lot of the borrowing and state-owned enterprises do a lot of the borrowing but there are contingent liabilities the reason why those entities are able to borrow so cheaply in most cases is because most investors including chinese banks assume that, that the government ultimately will backstop them so basically i would say that um, it is literally true that officially the chinese central government has low debts relative to, to other major economies. But in fact, if you actually count all those other, other uh, debts, it is not true. Um, on the issue of the, the, the poll from UBS, I mean, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna question uh, what, what your colleague had said about that, but I'll, I'll just note that um, the evidence I've seen suggests that a lot of the, the shifting of supply chains, it's not so much, uh, foreign companies in China who are there for the Chinese market. They naturally want to stay in China. It's more foreign companies who are in China to produce for export purposes. And these are the ones that are adopting the China plus one model. I mean, if you want to talk about interest, if you just, you know, Google or Baidu, the, the idea of China plus one, you'll get a lot of hits. It's, it's a major issue in terms of, uh, you know, consulting and supply chains. On the uh, issue of, of the superiority of, um, you know, China's uh, electric vehicle market. I don't contest that. China's just a much larger country and vehicle ownership is lower in China than it is in the US. So naturally they have six times the NEV sales as they do in the United States. But I will note that one of those packages that I talked about, I think including the infrastructure act I was I mentioned, has subsidies to, to spur more US consumption of those electric vehicles. Um, on the issue of FDI, 
uh, I, I mean, I'm not contesting that the Ministry of Commerce data suggests that China's FDI increased, but I will note that by those same statistics, uh, it's about you know 70% of the FDI is supposedly coming through Hong Kong. A lot of those you know mislabeling or round tripping, but it's it's hard to figure out what's actually happening based on those top level numbers. If if you look at Rhodium Group data, so Rhodium does sort of a ground up approach. They look at specific deals to get an aggregate for at least U.S. China FDI. And what they found was that FDI from U.S. firms into China actually fell in 2020, which is contrary to the official statistics. And I should note that those uh, U.S. FDI into China by the same measure had actually been fairly steady during the trade war. So it, it's not U.S.-China relations that's causing the problem. It's the pandemic. And I suspect the behavior of U.S. multinationals mirrors that of, say, European and other major countries' multinational firms. Um, and finally, on your point about you know the, the misunderstanding or, or, or evil thinking, uh, I mean, as I said, I, I can see that it might be the case that the views about China or its culpability with COVID are totally unfair. But nonetheless, if people believe it, it affects the public mood and it constrains what foreign governments can do. So it has the same diplomatic effect. I'll, I'll stop there. Thank you, Gerard, and thank you, Professor Yao. Uh, so we are now moving into our Q&A session. Uh, so to submit a question, you can click on the Ask Live Questions button on the CSIS page for this event. Or if you have any issues finding that button, you can email your questions to Hannah Price. So it's hprice at csis.org. So we already have a couple of questions queued up. Um, so let me ask a couple of them that are already there. The first question is directed towards Professor Yao. So from your perspective, could China have done more economically to respond to the pandemic? Um, particularly, are there two or three things that you think China could have done more in terms of boosting domestic consumption, controlling debt, or addressing any of the concerns that Gerard mentioned? Uh, that's a good question. I, I think, uh, if I may, I would just say uh, probably, as Gerard pointed out, uh, the Chinese government uh, should have spent more on people, uh, particularly on uh, you know those mi migrant workers. Uh, uh, indeed, I believe that the government uh, has done uh, not enough uh, to those people. Uh, so that, that, that this is the uh, first thing. And uh, the second, uh, probably uh, the government uh, should have done a much better job to control uh, the expansion of uh, local guns. Uh, that's particularly uh, that that's borrowed from uh, the market, the commercial, commercial markets. Right? Um, but having said that, I would just say, uh, in general, I would just say that uh, the Chinese government has done a fair job uh, to boost uh, the economy and also to stabilize uh, uh, the pandemic uh, in China. Thank you. Uh, the second question is for Gerard. Um, so as Professor Yao mentioned that uh, he believes that China will overcome the United States uh, economically as early as 2028, but no later than 2030. Uh, what are your thoughts on these uh, projections? I think um, that he's within the consensus for those kinds of projections, but I think that kind of um, future econometric modeling is very, very difficult and speculative in part because China's development model and some of the conditions in China, for example, the fact that it's getting so old demographically 
at, a, at a comparatively low level of development, say, compared to Japan or Korea, uh, it's hard to model that. There, there really isn't much in the historical sample that, that can really uh, replicate China. And so uh, I'm not disputing that a lot of forecasters will say that, but um, I think that those, those, those types of estimates will be revised repeatedly as they have been before. Um, I don't have an, a firm opinion as to whether it's 2030 or 2031. My point here is just that whatever you thought that convergence point was, I think it's later now because of COVID. Great, thank you. Another question I uh, we have, and it's for both of the speakers, is that um, from your perspective, how has the, the energy crisis within China, as well as China's commitment to climate change goals, how how will that looking forward affect China's economic growth? Um, well, the energy shortage in China is just a temporary, and I don't think uh, is uh, that much related uh, to China's uh, policies. Uh, to fight the climate change, right? There is some collection over there, but um, mostly just because, uh, you know, in the past uh, several years, uh, China has a really polluting, right? Uh, so uh, the Chinese government uh, cut uh, a lot of uh, coal mine capacities. Uh, but this year, look, the electricity uh, consumption has increased by 15% over 2019, over 2019, not over last year. This was uh, just a tremendous increase. Uh, three times uh, regular uh, growth, right? So with such a, a tremendous growth, uh, you can imagine there must be an energy uh, shortage, right? But the government is acting quickly. Uh, the government is coordinating those coal mines uh, to produce more coals, and uh, also to uh, in, uh, give those uh, power stations incentives so they can produce uh, more electricity. And it's you know right now in Beijing or in other major cities, we just don't feel energy shortage. Um, I, I mean, I, I agree with everything Professor Yao just said. I would just add that, um, and for those who are not tracking this closely, basically what happened is China is heavily relying on coal for its energy, for its electricity generation. There was a spike in the price of coal. In China, the price of coal is basically market determined, but the price of, of electricity is not. There's regulation on that. And so basically coal became too expensive, such that power producers, electricity uh, producers just stopped producing, and that caused power shortages in China. And as he said, you know, the Chinese government is trying to rectify that. I think in the long term, I, I really hope for the sake of the world that it does reduce China's dependence on coal. Coal is one of the most, the dirtiest fuels out there and China's relying on it. China for that reason, or, or large part for that reason, uh, is the number one emitter of greenhouse uh, gases currently. And so uh, I hope it will incentivize them to, to move faster on, on becoming carbon neutral. Can, can I do something to that? So we're talking about the coal. Uh, you know, uh, in China's 14 to five year plan, uh, we are going to cut the coal consumption by 10 percentage points. Right now it's 60% of China's energy mix is coal. So in five years, uh, that's going to be lower to 50%. I think in the next five year plan, uh, we're going to lower uh, coal consumption by another 10 percentage points. This is my colleague and I uh, have done some uh, simple uh, projection. 
And by 2030, uh, China definitely is going to reach, uh, uh, you know, the peak of carbon emission. Great, thank you. So we have a clarification question from the audience. So uh, one of the folks wanted to understand a little bit that Professor Yao, you had mentioned in your presentation that much of the Chinese uh, debt were bought by the people and then you mentioned rolling over debt between 2020, uh, 2014 and 2018. Could you just elaborate a little bit by what do you mean by the debt was rolled over and what happened there? Uh, yeah. Uh, so, in the last round of debt expansion, uh, local governments borrowed a lot of commercial debts uh, from banks and also from uh, the bonds markets. Okay. The bonds markets are really competitive, right? Uh, and purely commercial. Uh, so, local governments accumulated a huge amount of debts. Uh, and the central government uh, said, that now we have to roll uh, the debts uh, to the future. So how are we going to do this? And then the central government allowed the local government to issue government uh, bonds, pretty much uh, like uh, direct, just as that this is uh, open, transparent debts and the secured uh, or backed by future tax income, right? Uh, so in total, uh, this uh, debt swap uh, uh, amounted to 8 trillion RMB. So that's a big number. I mean, uh, one in one day, I'm going to see another round of uh, a swap between commercial debts into government debts. Probably that's the only way for us to, to resolve this uh, debt issue. Great, thank you. Uh, another question is for Gerard. Um, uh, one of uh, the questions was wondering if you might be a little bit uh, too uh, optimistic in the sense of how much COVID-19 is driving a political consensus within the United States. Uh, yes, there are lots of spending so far in the United States, but the Build Back Better package is having difficulty and there seems to be some sliding back into usual political, po political polarization in the United States. Can the United States really do the things it needs to do politically at home to maintain its global lead? So, I mean, I'm not, I'm not contesting that there's partisanship in Washington. Um, my point is that over the past two years, there has been a remarkable number of major pieces of, pieces of legislation under both the Trump and the Biden administration, by the way. The Operation Warp Speed was under Trump. Uh, and these are, these are substantial achievements. Uh, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that polarization is gonna go away in the United States, but I think we have if someone would have told me two years ago that this massive pandemic was coming and that the U.S. government was going to be able to coordinate with, with private firms, the military for logistics and researchers to produce mRNA vaccines basically less, in less than a year, when at the time a lot of people thought it was going to take years, I would have been amazed. But they did, right? And so I think, um, you know, we could debate the nuances of the individual policies and I'm not, I'm not suggesting that, you know, elections are not going to go back and forth. We have different systems. That's just how democracy works. But I think when it needed to function, the U.S. system did function. And I remain optimistic that when it needs to, it will function. Thank you. Uh, so we have another uh, set of questions for uh, both speakers. So Professor Yao, you had mentioned um, China's uh, efforts in artificial intelligence and how that will 
be relative uh, will help drive China's economic uh, growth. So the question is, can you talk a little bit more on particularly what do you see as China's strengths in artificial intelligence vis-a-vis the United States? And I'd also like Gerard to weigh in on this a bit. Uh, in well, terms of driving uh, the economy instead of just broadly uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, driving the economy, uh, I, I could give you several examples. Uh, uh, one is online shopping, right? Uh, in, in China, like my wife, <laughs> people just shop online. Uh, when you make an order, uh, you're going to be able to track uh, the shipment uh, on a minute basis, minute basis, right? So you can see, you can actually see the map uh, where your package is now in which city or on the road, right? So this has been helped by AI. Uh, and uh, another example is uh, those uh, uh, madness, uh, uh, which is what it's called, uh, uh, those, uh, those uh, uh, ports, right? Uh, we already have uh, two manis uh, ports, uh, one in Shanghai, uh, Shanghai uh, Yangshan uh, port, another one in Qingdao. Uh, so eventually when uh, wages uh, rise high enough, uh, I think uh, many jobs are going to be replaced uh, by AI or, or robots, right? Um, I, I can raise more, but uh, probably I should just stop here. Uh, so that's that's a very interesting question. Um, I, I'm not an AI expert, but I will draw heavily based on uh, Lee Kai-Fu's book, AI Superpowers, which I recommend. And one of his points there is that there are relative strengths in the AI ecosystems in the US and China. So for example, the US is better at, say, enterprise uh, you know, company type of AI that is internal to a company, whereas China might be better at some consumer-oriented AI. AI itself is a general purpose technology, so it's hard to generalize about what, what it can and cannot do. Um, but one of his points is that in the future, uh, China has one advantage, which is that it has a lot of, let's say, uh, second-tier engineers, software engineers who could do a lot of the rote programming, which which is true. But then he also says that the future of jobs is actually going to be more human-facing uh, AI synthetic like services where you actually can merge with the AI. And in that regard, if you think in the long term, I actually think uh, the US is much better suited institutionally and educationally because what he's talking about are services and that it's hard to imagine that say in 10 or 20 years, if AI really does what people think it's gonna do, China's not gonna need 100 million software engineers. The, in, the in software engineering could itself be automated. What you need is the more service oriented economy, which the US already has. So I think the U.S. is actually better positioned in that regard. Thank you. So we have a couple of questions related to um, uh, military and defense issues. So I'm going to group them and ask a question. Uh, I think that that's related to what all these questions are about, which is to what extent uh, moving forward do you see uh, the need to contribute to military investments, China's defense as impacting China's ability to grow economically? Uh, let me maybe first turn to, oh, Professor Yao, you go first, since I see you're ready to speak. <laughs> well, the, you know, China's military spending is uh, less than 2% of GDP. It's a uh, rather small, I think the exact number by Chinese statistics, it's about 1.5% or 
of GDP. It's one third of American level. So I really don't think uh, you know military spending is going to hinder China's uh, economic growth. Actually, military spending probably is going to accelerate China's economic growth because we know in the history, particularly in American history, many new technologies were developed by military spending, including internet, right? Uh, so uh, unless uh, you spend just uh, too much, like the uh, Soviet Union did uh, on military spending, uh, reaching say 40% or 50%, right? Uh, otherwise, uh, I really don't think uh, uh, military spending is going to affect uh, uh, China's growth or US growth. Thank you. Um, I, I mean, I'm not a military expert, um, but but my impression is, um, as Professor Yao says, you know, China spends roughly two percent of GDP on, on its defense. The U.S. is, I think, three and a half or four uh, percent. That the U.S. number also includes a lot of other things like R&D, uh, which may not be included in the actual PLA budget. As you said, a lot of innovations in the past have been because of military-related R&D. So there is potential positive upsides there. Uh, uh, you know, short of war, of course. I, I think neither country uh, faces a firm, you know, guns versus butter trade-off. They're both wealthy countries with capabilities. Neither China is not at all like the Soviet Union. But I do think that as China builds up its, its force strength, so for example, the number of ships in its navy, those are things that require just constant maintenance costs. And it does start to drag in the budget and reduces the amount of money that can go towards R&D. So in essence, China starting from a low, a low base and they're modernizing very quickly, and it gives them an edge, but eventually they have a large force that becomes more expen expensive and they become more like the US. So I think, I think, frankly though, in either case, if the US government or the Chinese government wants to throw some money at military R&D, they can both afford to do it. Great, thank you, Gerard. So we have another question actually for you, Gerard. Uh, so the question is, did China's closure of borders contribute significantly to decline in consumption or was it more negligible given the overall size of the economy? Do you think China's reopening of borders will lead to a significant boost in economic growth and consumption? And happy to have Professor Yao weigh in this after. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, so I think that the crux of that question is how much is international travel, how much does that matter to consumption in China? I don't have the stats at my fingers, but and maybe Professor Yao knows, but the vast majority of tourism in China is by Chinese people going to different parts of China, which is also true in the US, by the way, it's Americans moving within America. Um, it probably affected it at the margins. I suspect that you know when borders are reopened, that will help tourism on both sides. I think the effect of the border closure is more subtle. Um, it's more the the less person-to-person -person interactions. I mean, we can do this virtually, which is great. Um, but but I think that that will end up. It, I know it has actually stunted the ability of say uh, uh, corporate executives at major firms to go back and forth because they actually can't without going under lockdown. And I think that ends up stifling some of the, the business collaboration innovation. I think that might be the, the bigger long-term impact there. Uh, I think if China reopen its borders, uh, uh, domestic consumption is going to uh, come up. Uh, uh, definitely people, Chinese people are going to travel more abroad. I think um, many people uh, like uh, my family, uh, planning uh, international travel uh, next year or when the borders are uh, reopened. Uh, and th that's going to increase the domestic consumption too, right? It, because uh, uh, 
uh, pe when people go out, the people are going to buy tickets, you know, uh, book uh, hotels, uh, and many uh, uh, of Chinese people actually uh, do that uh, with the Chinese uh, travel companies, right? So that's kind of a consumption, domestic value added. And when people buy uh, goods from abroad, that's also going to increase the domestic consumption because many of those products have to pass by the customer. So there are custom shops that where you actually get your purchase. So that's also going to increase domestic consumption. I mean, it's just like a rising tide is going to lift every boat. So if the international travel goes up, then domestic consumption is going to go up. Great, thank you. I think we have time for only uh, two more questions. So uh, I'm gonna wrap up a, a couple of the trends uh, that we discussed for one question. So Professor Yao, could you talk a bit about what you see as some of the economic challenges that China faces vis-a-vis -vis, um, its demographics and inequality. We had talked a bit about this. I think Gerard mentioned, I think you briefly addressed it, but we had just a couple of questions related to this. If you could provide any final thoughts you have on this um, in terms of demographics and inequality and how that drives or impacts China's growth in the, from now until 2030, that would be greatly appreciated. Uh, yeah, yeah. let me take a, a demography because inequality is a big issue. And, uh, and more to say, but the time is short. Uh, uh, yes, uh, probably this year we're going to have, uh, for the first time, uh, not, not including the, the, you know, the old times, uh, in the last 40 years, Chinese population is going to decline. It's much quicker than most experts uh, have already <laughs> predicted. Okay, uh, But uh, I don't really worry about it uh, because uh, although uh, China is still at a low level of income uh, when China is becoming old. Uh, but that's probably an advantage for China. Uh, for example, we still have people moving from the countryside to the city. That's going to increase productivity. That's going to increase consumption, right? And let's also think about the AI and automation. Uh, uh, we have finished a, a book project with uh, the Brookings. Uh, so it's called the China tw uh, 2049. In that book, uh, we did a pro uh, projection and we found uh, actually automation is going to replace more labor uh, than uh, the dropout labor caused by aging, uh, which means uh, in the near future, we're going to face uh, unemployment issue not a shortage of labor, right? So uh, for that, I really don't uh, worry about uh, aging, at least in the short term. Great, thank you. So the final question we have is a little bit more speculative. Uh, so the question relates to um, what will happen, will there be any change in China's behavior if it was to become more powerful, whether you agree or not that China might surpass the United States around 2030 or not? So the question is, will China's behavior change? And specifically, maybe given that this discussion is mainly econ focused, we can uh, ask both speakers to comment on will China's economic behaviors change, uh, say 2030, depending on how you assess whether China has surpassed the uh, United States or not. 
So maybe let's turn to Gerard first for some thoughts, and then Professor Yao, I'll turn to you to close the session up before we go to the polling. So Gerard, do you think China's behavior will change economically if it becomes close to or near or, or surpasses the United States in economic power? Well, um, I mean, I, the, it's a tough question. I think the answer is yes. I think one one area that immediately comes to mind economically, um, as I alluded to earlier, is that uh, the Chinese government, their, their 14 five-year plan is saying that they want to basically hold the share of manufacturing as a share of the economy constant, which is to say that it's no longer calling for expanding services. Now, we know as countries develop, services generally take a bigger share of their economy. Um, and, you know, because as people get richer, they spend more money on services, travel, vacation, you know, et cetera. So I think they will have to reconcile the fact they want they want to maintain all this manufacturing, but they also want to grow economically, which raises the question of who's going to buy all the manufactured goods when you know as people get richer, they buy fewer manufactured goods, right? So I think the answer is they expect the rest of the world to absorb it, and that's just not going to work. So they're going to have to, um, I think, really boost the domestic circulation, internal circulation part of the dual circulation strategy uh, and get serious about domestic rebalancing because the math just won't work otherwise. Thank you, Jerry. Professor Yao? Uh, I think that the Chinese government uh, has already began to change its policy. Uh, like Jared uh, just uh, said, uh, China proposed with this dual circulation and then internal circulation means to increase consumption. As a matter of fact, the share of consumption uh, has began to increase uh, in as early as 2010. So uh, you look at the data, you see a share of consumption has uh, uh, risen up by almost eight percentage points over the last 10 years. Uh, so the Chinese economy is uh, rebalancing itself. I mean, uh, as uh, people become uh, richer, right, I think the government uh, uh, is going to change its mind, to put more, putting more emphasis on consumption instead of investment. Great, thank you both for a very rich discussion and fascinating debate. So let me now turn to uh, the final polling. So for polling, there's two ways to poll. One is online. And you see on the slide at the top, it's you can go to www.pollev.com slash China Power, and you can poll there. The other way to poll is if you are in the United States, you can text China Power, that's one word, to 22333. Uh, and once you join, you will then be asked to choose an option of either A or B. A is if you agree with uh, the statement that COVID-19 pandemic has accelerated the timeline by which China will surpass the United States to become the world's leading economic power. And B is if you disagree with this statement. So while we are waiting for polling, our next slide, please. I want to make for a quick plug for the next events we have scheduled for China, for China Power and particularly for our conference. Uh, so what we had originally sent out inf uh, information regarding our second debate, uh, that is now being rescheduled due a, to a scheduling conflict. So again, we are not having a debate on Monday, November 22nd. That was the debate scheduled for Dr. Michael Swain and Dr. Evan Maderos, and we will plan to have that at a later time in December. Instead, our next conference event will be a keynote by Secretary of the Army, uh, Ms. Christine Wormuth, on Wednesday, December 1st at 9.30 a.m. Eastern Time. 
I hope you will join us for this highly anticipated keynote. Secretary Wormuth brings decades of experience analyzing changes in Chinese power at the highest levels of our government, including in the U.S. Department of Defense. She will share with us her views on China and as well as how the U.S. Army is thinking about the China challenge. So with that, let me try to go back and see if we can pull up the polling results. We are seeing 88% disagree. Oh, wow. Okay. And uh, do, could you share with us what were the initial polling results? The initial polling results were 55% disagree. Great. Thank you, Hannah. That's an uh, interesting change. And um, once we have the more detailed results, we will hope to po uh, post this online. So our apologies that we're having technical difficulties displaying this, but this was a fascinating debate. Thank you very much again, Professor Yao Yang, and thank you, Gerard Dipavo. Thank you both for this fascinating debate and um, all your insights throughout the session.